Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. This week on Just Something About Her, we're delving into the very important, very pressing topic of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I've invited my friend Elise Jordan onto the show to discuss this. Elise has worked in a number of Republican foreign policy jobs. She worked for President Bush at both the National Security Council and the State Department. And then post-Bush, she worked and reported in Afghanistan for a number of years. So throughout those years, she developed relationships with Afghans who risked their lives to work with the U.S. government. And about a month ago, she reached out to me because she was desperate to help some friends in Afghanistan that were trying to get visas, hoping that I might be able to help her navigate that process with the Biden administration. And we've been having an ongoing conversation about what happened here. You know, to go back 20 years ago, the mission in Afghanistan was in response to the 9-11 attacks. It was to get al-Qaeda. It was to get bin Laden, and it was to make sure that Afghanistan never became a haven for terrorists. But what happened in the course of the last 20 years that we have been there, it became clear that when you're trying to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a haven permanently, you ended up engaging in a lot of nation-building exercises that were very difficult and ultimately unsuccessful in getting the Afghan government to be in a position where it could fully hold off the Taliban. Along the way, you know, more than 2,000 Americans were killed, more than $2 trillion was spent, and the American public stopped being willing to pay the price. Both Elise and I worked for two presidents who had to make tough decisions about putting more troops in Afghanistan. And I think for both President Bush, President Obama, the decision was made to do that because the option of leaving this hole in Afghanistan seemed too big of a price to pay. And the calculus is just different now. This story has been ongoing for 20 years and is still unfolding in front of our eyes. So we're taking this episode in two parts. Today, we'll get into the recent developments on the ground in Kabul, the tens of thousands of people in Afghanistan risking their lives to flee Taliban control, and how the U.S. government is reacting in real time. So let's get to part one of my conversation with Elise Jordan. Elise Jordan, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thanks for having me, Jen. There's a lot of people who are sharing their views on Afghanistan. There's few people who have as much experience as you do and care as deeply about it as you do. So I'm really grateful to you for doing this. Start by telling us your personal experience with Afghanistan as this relates to government jobs you've held, your postings there, the writing, reporting you've done in and about the country, just so folks have some awareness of your own experiences there. So I started out in the White House Office of Presidential Speech Writing under President George W. Bush. And while I was in that office, I volunteered to go to Iraq to help with election press and decided I was way more interested in foreign policy than domestic policy. So I applied for a job with Secretary Rice at the State Department and I got a job as a speechwriter there. And ended up moving back to the National Security Council to focus on Afghanistan press and comms. This was the end of the Bush administration, Mm -hmm. and we'd had a ton of focus on Iraq. Mm -hmm. And then the final year, uh, you know, we really were coming to a realization that 
what more could we have done for Afghanistan? It was becoming more of a news in the election cycle too. President Obama right. or then candidate Obama. It was an election issue where he was calling Afghanistan the right war. And there was more attention being put towards it after it had fallen a little bit on the back burner. It was a time when people thought that there had been too much focus on Iraq to the detriment of Afghanistan, right? And that Afghanistan was becoming more dangerous, more of a haven uh, for terrorism because of that. Right. And you nailed it. And so our policy vacillates back and forth, back and forth. And so now it does. I would probably say, oh, well, maybe security was better when we had a lighter footprint. But, you know, that's 20 years in and that's easy to say. That's so, interesting. I was at the National Security Council, and then I went over on detail to the ISAF headquarters, the NATO headquarters, working in the strategy group for the commanding general, who at the time was General David McKiernan, and working on putting together an assessment of our communications all across Afghanistan from where we had provincial reconstruction teams in various provinces to how the military was getting press around the country. We were looking at how can we do a better job communicating what's going on. Right. You know, it was a big deal at the time. I remember everyone was just so invested in keeping NATO engaged and keeping our partners engaged mm -hmm. and facilitating their journalists to be able to come to the country sure. also. And so after the administration ended, I went back to Afghanistan to work on a USAID project, building capacity within the Afghan government, 12 specific ministries. At the time, I think there were 37 Afghan ministries. And who was the president at the time? At the time, it was President Karzai. So this was 2009. And went in and kind of did the same thing, assessing the capacity that the Afghan government had to communicate to the Afghan people. And mm -hmm. that was a really fascinating and totally different experience. And I worked with some fabulous Afghan colleagues who we organized for all of the provincial spokespeople, spokesmen, obviously. Mm -hmm. And you really got to see, though, what great threat so many of the Afghans who sided with the government were at and, you know, choosing to make this choice and work with the government, which is incredibly dangerous. Even then, to side with the Karzai government over the Taliban. To side with the Karzai government. Uh -huh. And it was a chance to, you know, have a better life and a job and you'd get your government salary. Many people would, and they believed in a democratic Afghanistan, in an Afghanistan, not a Jeffersonian democracy, but <laughs> that wasn't going to be a Taliban and was going to offer rights to Afghans. Right. You know, then you had though at the top of that, so that's I'm talking very, you know, spread across the country, provincial level. At the top of the hierarchy, you have a government that is literally making so much money off of the nation building experiment, corrupt government officials. And mm. we all know it. And I just, you know, 2009 was somewhat of a turning point for me looking at Afghanistan because you ride around and you see all the narco mansions that the warlords have created um. with American taxpayer dollars. And I'm thinking, why did grandma and grandpa in, in Ashland, Mississippi, why is their taxpayer dollar going to this? And so you have all these contradictions of you see wonderful things happening with women on the ground and you see little girls going to school and you see women being able to thrive professionally and participate professionally for the first time since the 70s in Kabul, at least. But at the same time, the mission has so many underlying flaws that we 
are not willing to address with any administration. Mm -hmm. This is way oversimplified, but it festered until what we saw go down, you know, two weeks ago. And you see the president of Afghanistan flee the country, Ashraf Ghani. You have a really interesting perspective because you saw it twice. You saw it from the perspective of how most Americans who work on it, who actually go to the region, which is probably not most of the people who work on the issue actually go to the region. But then you saw it from the Afghan government side. Well, and then I also went back as a journalist and I did Mm -hmm. an embed in Helmand province with female Marines who were trying to reach out and engage with Afghan women. So I got to see it from the grassroots level of what counterinsurgency looks like in action and what it's like to be those young men and women who are going around for 12 hours with heavy armor on foot and doing a foot patrol in Helmand province. And the disconnect from all three of those levels, from the White House to the command in Kabul to when you get out at the provincial level and then when you get out with actual soldiers who are operating from a combat outpost without running water. And you kind of can see, unfortunately, just how this on some level was doomed. I don't think it had to be as doomed, but no one ever wanted to really address and we reinvented every year what we were doing in Afghanistan, essentially. So nearly $2 trillion have been spent on this war. 2,352 Americans to date have died. 66,000 Afghan servicemen and 47,245 civilians. uh, It's pretty heavy, right? Yeah. And you realize we needed to end it somehow, but I just hope that we could do it better than this and treating the people who were there for us with the dignity that they deserve too. But it just shows that war is just so inherently awful and that there's never going to be, you know, a graceful or clean way to exit and America at least has not figured out the way to do so. Afghanistan falls to Taliban control. Thousands of Afghans are struggling to get on the next plane out. At least 20 deaths here in the past week. So a few weeks ago, you started emailing me and some of your other Democratic friends who are likely to know people in the administration, and you were asking for help for friends and former colleagues in Kabul. You know, tell us what you're hearing from your friends and have you had any success in getting people to safety? No, I have had no success. And I'm going to try to stay hopeful because my friends are staying hopeful and they're in a far worse circumstance than I am from my cushy confines in the United States. But the closest, you know, I had friends at the airport those initial two days and there was no water, there was no food. You told me one day, I was like, how are your friends? And you said, oh, great news. I got to the airport and you thought they had even gotten out. And then the next day you told me like, no. I had had this false assumption that the airport would still be a protected green zone of sorts. And that once you were inside it, everything Mm -hmm. would be okay. Green zone means it's like safe. Yes. And fortified and the U.S. government, the U.S. forces are protecting it. British forces too. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I thought once you made it there, because that's also where they're doing the embassy evacuation from. So where we're sending our own people would not be to an insecure facility. But I think that we have diplomats operating under just really an 
epic amount of security dysfunction and trauma right now at a level that usually mm-hmm. State Department diplomatic security goes above and beyond to not have our diplomats put in this kind of situation. It's just harrowing what the stories coming from the airport have been. And so the airport just has become this gauntlet where you can't get in there unless you have very specific security. Cutter has been escorting people in and out groups because they have relations with the Taliban. And so Hmm. they've been successful. You have a few other groups that have been successful, but just navigating the gauntlet, if you're not young and strong and a single person, not trying to, you know, keep your family together because you could get trampled. And so who knows? I am very sad that the Taliban have said that they aren't going to let any more Afghans pass. So let's hope that they don't stick to that. But It's just a pretty grim outlook. Mm -hmm. And granted, they have been successful at moving almost 50,000 people out. That's nothing to sniff at. They did it immediately. I give them kudos for that. But there are just so many more. And that's not comforting for those who don't get out. We're talking on Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon today. So according to the White House um, this afternoon, since August 14th, the U.S. has evacuated and facilitated the evacuation of approximately 58,700 people. And since the end of July, they have relocated approximately 63,900 people. I know that the Pentagon said today they're doing about 20,000 a day and they hope to maintain that. And so to have that to go from, you know, they were like at less than 2,000 a day just a few days ago to 20 is pretty reassuring. Let's just hope. I'm going to hope that the Taliban still allow Afghans out, that they allow Americans and dual citizens to, to enter. There are just a lot of TBDs here that are dangerous. All right, time for a quick break. After the break, I want to ask Elise a little bit more about what her friends and contacts are telling her about the situation on the ground in Kabul. And if there's something the Biden administration could have done to avoid some of this chaos. We'll be right back with Elise Jordan on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with our guest, Elise Jordan. So, Elise, I know that you had really wanted to bring on an Afghan woman who is working as an activist, working to try to get people out of the country. And, you know, it's just people are reticent to being on the record. Like, what can you tell us that you're hearing about them? Well, this is an Afghan story. And so I by no means want to take the space where I really think an Afghan woman would have been far better telling what's going on right now. But It's a very scary time and so much is in limbo with this deadline of being able to get out of the country themselves and being able to get friends and family out and not wanting to speak publicly and jeopardize chances uh, with security with the Taliban or visa chances just because everything is so precarious and everything's so in limbo. And I wish I tried harder and been able Mm -hmm. to find someone to come on, but anything that we all can do to think of what Afghan women are going through right now and this major time of societal upheaval for them after having had rights for so long and now having it all taken away, you know, let's just be cognizant of that and appreciate the sacrifices that they've made. Some disturbing new audio that shows the desperation, the level of desperation of one single Afghan woman as the Taliban arrives in Kabul. I'm done. My life is over. It was way too late. 
to control the situation. I'm sorry, but your efforts don't mean anything anymore. You mentioned some of the people you've been trying to help evacuate from Afghanistan to no avail, but what can you tell us about the process of trying to get them out? You know, working at the project with USAID, I got to know so many Afghans working in government and working with us. And so it was really a privilege just to get to know so many wonderful colleagues. And starting, I guess, nine years ago, I first wrote an application letter for the friend that I am worried isn't going to be able to make it out. And it got approved. There was no reason that it never should not get approved. An application letter for, for a the visa? special visa that we were granted. Special immigrant visa. This, yes. is, this is the SIV we, we hear about. The SIV news program. And I appreciate you spelling out the government acronyms because sometimes I can get too government <laughs> acronymy. But that process, just in this one particular case, started almost a decade ago. And so this is something that languished through the Obama administration. Trump didn't do anything and completely shut it all down. Why did that happen with this particular program? Is it like lack of resources? Was it lack of will? Was it politically inconvenient to be wanting to bring, you know, refugees into the country? Was politics part of this? Because this is not like a Biden or a Trump or an Obama thing. It's something that collectively that's been going on for the last decade. Well, I'm baffled by it because we did a little bit better when it came to our Iraqi friends. And I remember the war in Iraq was still going on, but then friends who were working at the embassy and had to get out, they got their civ visas processed, their families got out, they resettled in the United States. It was incredibly difficult, but they were able to do it. And it just got a lot more difficult. And I don't know if it was the tide turning in the country towards anti-immigration, yep. more nativism, which I think it infected both administrations to some degree because it makes Democrats very risk averse because yep. they don't want to let in yep. foreigners who might pose a threat and set themselves up for political attack. And then we saw what Donald Trump did and it could right. have gotten more god-awful and anti-refugee and immigrant than that. So basically, I mean, the Biden administration came in and they inherited a big, big problem. And then coronavirus on top of it shut down all of the in-person processing at the embassy in Kabul. So my friend went back for the follow-up interview in April. So it languished for that many years. And over the course, uh, a lot of family members got out, but then the remaining nuclear family needed to still get out. Mm -hmm. Because the Taliban will go after the rest of the family, right? Is that right? Yeah. You don't want to leave women too. It's not like you're going to leave, you know, any of the women in your family to fare for what holds because there's just no way. How are they even going to be able to operate? I know friends in Kabul who now have family members from provinces who act as bodyguards now and can escort their daughters or wives around. It's uh, a different environment. Women who were caught off guard, professional women, and suddenly needed a burqa and couldn't leave the house until their brother or husband went and got them a burqa so that suddenly they could go out again. And then there are other women who are far braver than I can ever imagine myself being who say, screw this, I'm not going to wear a burqa and start the precedent and are still going out on the streets anyway. And it's that kind of courage and bravery that just really, you know, just, whoa, 
That takes guts. Mm-hmm. So it's been 10 years, still no visa. And then this happens. Yeah. And we've been communicating, you know, last couple months about it and no traction. And I figured I worked at the State Department. I know the State Department pretty well. I should be able to help figure this out. At least I can help. Yes. yes, At least I can help, you know, one family. And I have been just beating the drum everywhere and could not get any movement on actually issuing the visa that had been approved. Was there like a moment where you were like a switch flipped and you thought, this is going to be a catastrophe and I just like have to do everything I can? Really two weeks before Kabul fell because I was trying to figure out who owned this policy, who could I talk to about Mm -hmm. this? And I realized that Afghans trying to get their special visas that they qualified for because they risk our lives to work with us. And we promised that we were going to be there for them. All they had was an email account that never responded. It's just a bottomless pit, an email account. And news reports, the email account like broke down because it crashed because too much, you know, too much traffic was coming to it, but you just never got a response. So I tried to figure out who owned this policy at the State Department. And went to the point of getting someone to look at cables where decisions had been signed off on regarding this policy and just like leaving random voicemails on desk phones at the State Department, just trying to figure out who could help me, you know, get this visa issue and help get people out. And nothing ever got answered. And it was pretty clear that no one owned the policy, period, and that we were going to be caught completely flat-footed. I wish I was totally wrong. Right. God, I wish I was totally wrong. But that's what happened. And now we see the devastating aftermath of so many of our Afghan friends aren't going to be able to get out. And it really makes me question, you know, if America should be able to recruit foreign nationals, period, to work for our country, if this is the way that we're going to treat them. It's just not a way to treat your allies, your friends, your fellow human beings. But I blame myself to a certain extent. And what happened in my level of engagement with helping my friend mirrors what happened with the country and our government on some level of just not paying as much attention to what was happening in Afghanistan. You know, I started to really become obsessive over the political cycle here and turn my focus inward, which is what a lot of us did. And a foreign war that isn't going that well doesn't hold the American public's interest. And there are plenty of policymakers who don't mind there not being a focus on the war because then they have more freedom and creative license. And you end up with just the special inspector general for Afghanistan writing just outrageous scathing reports about the mismanagement of the war that no one really pays attention to. And mm-hmm. even though I followed it closely, I was surprised by the Taliban strength because I think I'd internalized on some level just for how many years we had been told that they were just this ragtag band of fighters that didn't have shoes and, you know, could only, uh, you know, fight in certain fighting seasons and blah, blah, blah. And certainly that isn't right. the level of they sophistication don't fight winter and, yeah. that took right. over Kabul. So I think we have a huge, huge reckoning with how we communicate the truth from our government entities. And I, you know, really wonder how many times did I contribute to there being a rosier view than there should have been when it came to these wars? Yeah. 
we've both worked in government. We know it's super annoying when people on their outside are like, they should have done this. But Biden announced in April the withdrawal. You know, you've told me that you supported the idea of the withdrawal. What should have happened? Do you have a sense of that? Like what they could have done once that decision was made to avoid the catastrophe that we've seen in, you know, that Sunday? It was always going to be a catastrophe on some level with the security and with the government falling to the Taliban after 20 years. But I just think we could have done a lot more getting our Afghan allies the paperwork that they needed, vetting and ramping up those operations just so that we aren't going to have the human carnage of what we did in Afghanistan along with the fall of the government to the Taliban. We could have done more in terms of not closing Bagram airspace, figuring out you know, what could be renegotiated with the Taliban. It was a weak agreement. Trump obviously just wanted to have something on paper and just wanted to uh, be able to claim victory and obviously could care less about the actual substance. The agreement that Trump administration came to with the Taliban, which I guess was like in February 2020. Biden did push back the date of the plan withdrawal. Because it was supposed to be May 1, I think, was when it was supposed to happen. But overall, he did keep it intact. And I'm not a grand military strategist, but I wouldn't think that August is, you know, exactly when you want to up and go in terms of fighting season. But you live and you learn. And I'm not trying to armchair quarterback too much. It's more I'm speaking from just my own personal sadness. And I know that the sadness that so many others who worked in Afghanistan feel for, you know, just how we're leaving it. Mm -hmm. I wish we had prioritized the evacuation of, you know, not only Afghan allies, but Americans too, because it could be a huge looming hostage situation if we do not get all the American citizens out of Kabul. And that's a tricky, tricky nut to crack when they have been saying that August 31st is for sure. And there Mm -hmm. aren't that many missions going on outside of the wire. Do you have any sense of what the universe of people who are likely to be eligible to leave? Are we talking about 100,000 people? Are we talking more? I think you're probably safe to say 100,000 are pretty tangible, easy cases to vet and process. And then there are so many more in terms of women, civil society actors, journalists, people Mm -hmm. who just are not going to be accepted by the new regime that I would be scared to speculate about what those numbers would be. That would be above and beyond. That's the people that are just um, much more vulnerable to Taliban attacks. And I've just gotten so many emails about so many cases. And it's not like I have any power. Mm -hmm. It's been 10 years since I was really involved in it. And that's the level of desperation that you're seeing, just reaching out to anyone who could possibly help you and your family. Mm -hmm. It's something that we need to consider when we ever want to intervene in a foreign country. And we need to think very strongly, especially about nation building and what the long-term consequences are going to be of trying to change a society to meet us where we are when perhaps we need to be meeting them where they are. Why didn't we see it coming? One thing you've talked about a lot in your Twitter account that I think hasn't gotten a ton of attention is Ghani. 
Ashraf Ghani. Afghan leaders are blaming President Ashraf Ghani, who fled yesterday without warning the public or the rest of the government. So he was the president of Afghanistan, I guess. We referred to that in the past tense, that it was his fleeing from Kabul. I guess he left on that Sunday. That sort of was like the end. Yeah, and it really, and really, I think, is going to get more credit for what's happening. We're not mm-hmm. really at that phase yet, but yeah. by fleeing the country just triggered the absolute collapse yeah. and chaos. And I don't think that anyone thought that he was going to be just that cowardly. But given that, you know, the last communist leader was castrated and I think that they like did some pretty horrible stuff before they hung him up and killed him, that's understandably what Ashraf Ghani was fearing from the Taliban. But at the same time, saving himself has literally imperiled so many millions. One thing that you tweeted on the 21st, I guess it was Monday, this past Monday, he said, New York Times reporting on Biden Ghani's last meeting, and it's hard to not just scream. And what the story said is Mr. Ghani, a former World Bank official who Mr. Biden regarded as stubborn and arrogant, had three requests. He wanted the United States to be, quote, conservative, end quote, in granting exit visas to the interpreters and others, and quote, low key, end quote, about their leaving the country so it would not look as if America lacked faith in his government. What makes you want to scream about that? So at the same time that Ashraf Ghani is telling Americans, oh, don't save the lives of anyone who worked for you, I'm going to cut and run the second that the going gets too tough for me. It just is (laughs) true failure in leadership. But I guess that ship sailed a long time ago. Ashraf Ghani has always been a fascinating character to me just because I'd heard these stories about when he was minister of finance back in the day Mm -hmm. and how he... um, had part of his stomach removed and so he couldn't eat very much. And so he would get very, very cranky. Mm. That's a polite way to put it. But one time he got so mad in a meeting that he slammed his arm on the table and broke his arm. Oh my God. Broke his wrist. Like he had a, you know, pretty violent temper and was known to be a volatile type. And then when he first ran against Karzai in Karzai's reelection, that was the big debacle in 2010, he really garnered just no support and didn't have a strong showing at all. So it was always fascinating to me that he did manage to make such a comeback in Afghan politics. I worked with him a little bit on Kosovo liberation. He seemed very much a capable technocrat. Well, the kind of technocrat the West loves. And so we throw our our support behind. And I don't know, maybe he just wasn't that connected with what the... Afghan men and women actually needed. I uh, I don't have the answers. It's just, it's all very depressing. All right, time to pay some bills. Then I want to talk about this August 31st deadline for troop withdrawal from Afghanistan and what the risks are associated with staying and leaving. That's next with Elise Jordan and just something about her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Elise Jordan. Again, it's Tuesday, August 24th, and this afternoon, President Biden announced that he is planning on sticking with the August 31st deadline to get American troops out of Afghanistan. He said the longer we stay there, the more dangerous it is. Every day we're on the ground is another day we know that ISIS-K is seeking to target the airport 
and attack both U.S. and allied forces and innocent civilians. Biden did say that he's asked the State Department and the Pentagon for contingency plans to adjust the timeline if that becomes necessary. But the Pentagon has said it will be, quote, finished evacuating everyone by that deadline without specifying who is included in that everyone. What's your expectation about what's likely to happen and your reaction to a notion of a hard deadline? Well, just right before we spoke, I saw that the AP was reporting that President Biden was going to hold firm to the August 31st deadline and that the Taliban had also said in a press conference today that there would be consequences if the U.S. did not hold firm to the deadline. So the rhetoric is getting escalated, which isn't good. And I know that just so many of the incredible veterans and former national security types who are trying to help allies get out. They were hoping so desperately that the deadline would be extended a little bit, but I guess it couldn't be negotiated. I mean, I know you're not a military, (laughs) you're not a military expert, but in terms of looking at the choice that Biden has to make, what are the risks both ways, the risks of, you know, continuing to extend this operation beyond August 31st, and the Taliban has said that they would not tolerate that versus just trying to get out by the 31st? It would be a choice of having to choose to bring more American men and women back to Afghanistan to see this out in the way that I think as a country, we want to see it out. And Mm -hmm. he does not seem inclined to change that position and is very firm in his judgment, according to, that's my read from his current statements. Yeah. I've seen some people talk about, so the British ambassador in the news today talk about the possibility of continuing to have flights come out commercially after the 31st. I mean, do you have any way of knowing if that seems just wishful thinking, highly unlikely? I've been joking that we aren't going to suddenly see woke Taliban emerge. I mean, I hope that we do, but I just, I think it's delusional. And from some of the statements that have been made already, they've said that women are going to be allowed to continue in medical professions and as teachers. And that's very much a capacity issue too, simply because they need women to fill those professions because there just aren't mm -hmm. enough professional medical personnel or teachers in the country, you know, to keep everything operating. I am not optimistic that they're suddenly going to decide to let their capacity leave. And they've been very clear that they want educated Afghans to stay Mm -hmm. to help, you know, move the country along. And one of my friends was explaining to me just the hatred of the Taliban, as you can imagine, from the educated class. So they have no constituency whatsoever. If you can just, you know, slightly imagine how hated they are among the professional class, the educated class. And there have been some demonstrations against them throughout the country, right? Which is so brave and demonstrations for the flag to keep the flag and not to switch the Afghan flag. Does that give you any hope or what does that tell you? Does it surprise you? I'm not surprised because... Mm -hmm. What do you really have to lose when the Taliban, I mean, you have your life to lose, but if you're a young man or woman and you've only known the last 20 years of a relatively more free environment and you've heard the stories about what the Taliban are going to bring, Mm -hmm. it's very brave. And I really admire 
the courage of taking that stance when there is so much at stake. But Mm -hmm. I think it is simply just such an existential question for these young men and women. Do you think that it's likely Afghanistan will become a haven, a safe haven for emerging terrorist groups again? I sure hope not. I put a lot of faith in the so-called experts who I'd read and I'd <laughs> talked to and they had you know, given me all these mm-hmm. reasons about our forward posture and our air assets in the region and how it wouldn't become a terrorist safe haven. But then I'm hearing, you know, from volunteers who are trying to help Afghans get out that they're petrified of an ISIS suicide bomber for attention outside the airport gates. Yep. So I don't want to make any predictions one way Mm -hmm. or another. There's no country in the world that deserves peace probably as much as Afghanistan after just the constant warfare it's been subjected to for so many years. And I wish that this would be, you know, the Taliban trying to be welcomed into the international community and woke Taliban 2.0. But I'm just I'm going to keep my expectations in check for now. All right, that's a good place to press pause on this conversation with Elise Jordan. As she just expressed, there are a lot of unknowns and we're all keeping our expectations in check. But tune in next week as we get a little deeper into the issue. We'll hear more about Elise's experience as a journalist embedding with female Marines, whose mission was to engage with Afghan women, what the disconnects were between their needs and what the U.S. was able to provide, and Elise's frustration with how the media has covered the past 20 years of the war. We'll see you next week on Just Something About Her. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Liz Jordan for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer and Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.